Hello, Charles Commons here. Welcome to Tech Demand Weekly. Over the last few episodes, we've looked at creating content through storytelling and repurposing that content. We've also explored how to write a white paper back in episode one. In this week's episode of Tech Demand Weekly, we are going to try and sum all of that up and look ahead to what happens next. My site is ugly. My competitors' sites are beautiful. I want to be beautiful. Now they know that I'm not just playing the sport for fun. I'm watching the scoreboard and literally trying to win for each client. If it was one size fits all, we would all have the same website. The marketer that is more empathetic with their audience is the marketer that wins. Andy Crestadina is a co-founder and chief marketing officer of Orbit Media, an award-winning digital agency in Chicago, the USA. Andy has provided digital strategy to more than a thousand businesses over the last 18 years, so is perfectly suited to look at how to use content wisely. To start our chat, I asked Andy why he thinks it's so important for a business to be creating content, considering lots of businesses here in the UK don't even operate with their own website. Well, everything that you do every day is an example of the importance of content. If you watch your own behavior and just follow your own path as you research almost any buying decision, you are reading reviews, you're getting advice, you're talking to friends, you're looking at guides, ratings, uh, you are investigating options. Uh, Every time you go from problem aware to solution aware to brand aware, you are touching content at each step, sometimes using search. Those might be at the beginning informational queries. And then as you understand what you might need, you start to make information, uh, uh, commercial intent queries. And as you interact online, we are constantly exposed to the advice of others. And all of that is content. Every little bit of it is content. So if you just broaden the definition of content a little bit from blogs to video, social media posts, white papers, guides, infographics, podcasts, webinars, live events, reviews, ratings. It's really hard to imagine any brand or any service or product succeeding without putting something out there to become educational, to win reciprocity, to be generous, to create awareness for the brand, and then ultimately to be trusted and convincing and compelling and get people to act. I suppose really here in the UK, the biggest um, example that I can use of businesses that might not have their own website is, let's say, uh, a hairdresser. Um, They're still making content, though, because as you walk past the window, you will see pictures of the um, the, the hairdressing that they've done in the past. So pictures of models that they've actually um, styled themselves. That's still content. And that's important to remember, isn't it? It is. It is. So regardless of what you do, a hairdresser... Imagine you're the target audience, take out your phone and do what you would do and see what you would see if you're that target audience. And in that example, one of the things you're going to see is maybe in search, you're going to see a map, you're going to see reviews, that's content. Uh, You're going to see images, you're going to uh, learn who works there, you might see a social profile, that's content. So yeah, I don't know how to do it without that. You know, everyone has to have a message or else what is marketing and how will you ever be discovered? 
So in all six episodes of the series so far, each guest has stressed the importance of the art of telling a story. Um, way back in episode one, Dave Howell told us how to put that story into a white paper. And we've had Jeff Sass and Nathan Isaacs talking about repurposing old content to tell new stories. And we've had uh, Joe Lazowskis and Elise Dobson talk to us about the art of brand storytelling as well. In your opinion, Andy, um, why should companies tell stories? Well, Every brand started somewhere. Every brand has a history. Every company was started by people who had an idea, the origin story, the purpose story. These are things that make people care. Hi, I'm Mike, founder of dollarshaveclub.com. What is dollarshaveclub.com? Well, for a dollar a month, we send high quality razors right to your door. Yeah, a dollar. Are the blades any good? No. Our blades are great. Every case study or bit of evidence has a character and has a conflict, and those are elements of stories. So even the smallest testimonial is leveraging elements of story. I'm a bit contrarian on this view because I do believe that it's possible for brands to create awareness without telling any stories. The hairdresser in that example, if you rank in local SEO and the person walking by sees a picture they love. In fact, there are very successful content programs where the content is based on giving advice and publishing how-to articles. Uh, there are super popular YouTube channels that are basically just filled with step-by-step how-to instructions with almost no story at all. And there are visitors who are exposed to that content. They become brand aware. They land on websites that have service pages that answer their questions or product pages that look legitimate and have you know good reviews. And the visitor could become a lead or buy a product without actually touching the about page or reading the story or learning the history or the values of that brand. So it's possible. I think it's possible to uh, do great marketing even without the prospect ever hearing your actual story. Uh, But it's still, I mean, if you don't know how to tell stories, you've got a big disadvantage against those marketers that do. I think one of the um, the biggest example that I had was in episode four. Um, I was speaking with content storyteller Elise Dobson, who's from the UK. Um, she actually told us a story about an American software company called Zendesk. That Zendesk example is a three-minute video based on a story. And the story is all about how another business used their name. So when Zendesk were first starting, they found another company using their name and they wanted to do something that would say, no, we, like our company is the real Zendesk and here is why you should come to us rather than them. So how'd you guys get started? Me and Roddy started the band in 94 in Seattle called Zendesk. What kind of band are you guys? Well, we're an alternative, man. So uh, what's this album about? Email support. It's great to see those stories as a consumer, but it must also be great for them as the marketers to have made such a good, um, compelling video and compelling piece of content. Um, I mean, how would you then go about, if you've got that sort of story there, how would you go about conveying it to the world? Well, if you start with the audience and imagine their experience and the flow and where they they begin, uh, they may be in social media, in which case, you have calls to actions and triggers and emotion and visuals that pull them into a piece of content. 
So that content, that story may start on social and end up on a blog. Uh, there are stories that are told during live presentations, which are extremely effective marketing content. And that would be you know, something that the person has already converted and they're in the room and they're registering for the event and they're sitting in the chair in front of you. There are stories that are just beautifully constructed, high, high production value videos that live on about pages or people's bios that tell them that, that explain what that brand believes, why it exists, how they, def, you know, their what they stand for, what they stand against. Uh, and those are extremely compelling uh, stories in that context. So it sort of depends, the format may depend on the source of traffic. And if you start with your visitor and where the visitor is, uh, you'll find opportunities to weave stories through their experience and never miss the chance to give that little setup of, you know, the prospect as the hero and the conflict they're trying to overcome and how the brand has helped them do that. And then the outcome, you know, like the case study, the classic case study is problem solution result. That's basically a story format. Uh, whether or not they clicked on something called a case study, or they just read a miniature version of it in a testimonial, or they met one of the characters from that story just in social media, it is something that can be injected in many places. And the starting point is always the, the where that customer is sitting in their browser or on the on their phone. I think I think we've heard that uh, a lot of a lot of times that, that whereas people say content is king, we've also heard well knowing who your audience that is that is maybe even a, a higher uh, standard that you must uh, uh, adhere to uh, as as part of your strategy. Um, you're saying there that you know you've got to kind of know where your audience is actually looking to know where to then put the content. It's our obsession. Content marketing is it's a, a test of empathy. And the marketer that is more empathetic with their audience is the marketer that wins. He waits. That's what he does. And I'll tell you what. Tick followed talk followed tick followed talk followed tick. says I don't care who you are, here's to your dream. The old sailors return to the bar. Here's to you, I have. And the fat drummer hit the beat with all his heart. You know, where they are, what their triggers are, what they, what their hopes are, what they're afraid of, what might stop them from taking action, who they trust, uh, and what calls to action may be compelling to them. So if you just lay that out, those six or eight things, you know, where you're talking, what is what social networks you're active on, or what keywords you're targeting, that's social insert, so you're going to attract the visitor. Now they land on the page. There's a true story in the life of every visitor to every web page. What do they care about? What are they hoping for? Why did they come here? Now you know how to prioritize the messaging on that page. You know why they might not take action. You address their objections. You know how to support your answers to their questions with evidence, testimonials, case studies, statistics. 
And then finally, that call to action that's contextual to them in their problem in that moment. I just described a tiny, super short version of the funnel, but it was that pathological empathy based on everything that this person wants, who they are, where they are, what they need, how we can help, and just create that bridge from social media to your website's thank you page, <laughs> or from Google to your website's thank you page. That's what digital marketing is. It's a, it's a bridge that connects from that visitor, wherever they happen to be, to the thank you page on your website. And the degree to which you are empathetic and use data to keep optimizing this process is the extent to which you attract and convert these visitors into leads or customers. Last week's episode, we spoke with Twitter expert Madeline Sklar. Now, she talked up using um, video on Twitter. It's like a mission I'm on. I want people to get in the habit of hitting the reply button. And instead of just replying back like, oh, thank you, Charles. I really appreciate you sharing my tweet. Instead, hit the little camera icon, put it on video, selfie mode, and just make a video. Just say whatever it is you want to say instead of typing it. So now they're seeing you. You're giving them a personalized tweet. It's just for them. And they're going to feel much more comfortable with you. You know, with businesses, what are we trying to do? We're trying to get people to know, like, and trust us. What's your opinion on that sort of activity? Is that something that you'd think about doing, Andy? Oh, well, she's brilliant and she's right. So, so often you hear the question, you know, how do we rise above the noise? How do we get engagement? Uh, there's so much, it, 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 people have just flooded the zone. What do we do? How do we overcome this? And she's just got a simple tactic to rise above everyone else by simply doing what 99% of people don't do. So when everyone else is using text, she's using video. So she's immediately, just by ch changing the format, right? It's maybe not a different message. It's just done in, the, uh, in upgraded format. So she has immediately set herself apart from 999 other people who are doing social media in that person's stream. So definitely, and, and social media networks are really uh, rewarding the marketers that turn on their cameras. The algorithms love video and your content, if it's, if it's a response, that's amazing personalization. But if it's just a social media post and you use video, you're still going to see way better results because social media algorithms are pushing social to the top of streams and so, and showing videos, pushing video to the top of streams and showing video to uh, a much larger audience than just a regular text post. But what I would say also is that that's not limited to social media. Maybe a uh, important prospect, the prospect of yours in your pipeline emails you a question. Send a video answer 
and you will distinguish yourself from every other service provider they're considering. You know, so whatever it is that you're doing, wherever you're doing it, always look for the opportunities to upgrade the format from text, which is the least compelling, to visuals, which are far better, to video and movement, which is the ultimate format. The only way to beat that is to meet people face-to-face, and that's live events. But Madeline is absolutely right, and it's a fantastic suggestion. Uh, it was one of those things at the time when she said it, I, I kind of went, I've, why have I never thought about doing that before? It is such an obvious thing, um, but at the same time, so far removed from the norm because everyone's used to, you know, Twitter, just get your phone out and then and then type something up. That's what most people that, that are on Twitter actually are used to doing themselves. No one, yeah, yeah, they might send a picture out or a video that they record of, of an event happening at the time, but it, it's very rare to actually see someone maybe go, do you know what, actually what I'll do is is I'll turn the camera on me and I'll, I'll say what I'm wanting to type rather than typing it out and making it more personal. That was the, the key thing for me from what Madeline said. And as you said, it's brilliant. It's fantastic. And why has no one <laughs> ever thought it. of that before? That's That's my question. I don't see why it's taken so long for that to have actually come about. Yeah, she's great. Another one that I think is unusual is uh, if you want to say thank you to someone, uh, write a handwritten note. People don't do that as much anymore. And that's another way to be in the top 1% and distinguish yourself from 99% of other people. Um, but that, but yeah, I mean, just turning on your phone camera to send a response to any social post. Perfect. So great. I love her. I'm really pleased that Andy likes Madeline as much as I do. It was a fantastic episode last week, so do go back and check that out as well if you have time. For now, though, we're going to take a short break, but when we come back, I'll be talking to Andy more about what he actually does within Orbit Media and how he speaks to companies that become his clients. Tech Demand is a B2B platform who specialise in connecting organisations with their customers. Tech Demand create unique and engaging specialist content which is evergreen for generating campaign success. Visit the website tech-demand.com to discover how Tech Demand can help you. Welcome back to Tech Demand Weekly. I'm your host, Charles Commons. This week, I'm speaking to Andy Crestadina, marketing content strategist. To kick off the second half of the episode, I asked Andy what the first thing is he does when he's approached by a business about wanting to redevelop their site to get more eyes on their content. Well, to go into sales mode immediately puts the prospect on defense and they're on guard and they're expecting to be sold to. So we never begin any conversation by assuming that we're the best fit for the client. If in B2B service providers context, if you, and a lot of people are very good at this, this won't be, uh, you know, groundbreaking advice to most of your listeners, but just start a conversation, just get with in a room with them if possible and start asking a lot of questions and try to learn the deeper causes for the reason that they're taking this action. I mean, for websites, it's a common thing. We want a new website. It's just time for a new website. But if you really want to succeed for that client, you have to know their deeper motivations. Have they been frustrated with something before? Have they tried something? What have they tried? How didn't? How did it work out? Um, what are they? What alternatives have they considered? Um, what is the almost emotional outcome that they're hoping to achieve from the project? Uh, who are the main decision makers? And there's people who just care about story. There's people who care about brand and visuals and beauty. There's people who care mostly about search rankings and visibility. 
Some people, they just want fewer headaches with the way that their website integrates with their other systems. Some people hate their content management system. Some people know that the site is failing to leverage human psychology to maximize the conversion rate. Some people just live in a black hole. They have no idea what's working, what's not. They have no access to analytics or, or any data at all. Sometimes it's just a new person started working there and they don't like what the old person did and they want to put their, their you know, kind of uh, fingerprint on it. So it, if you just start with someone says, I want X and you say, oh, here's, an, here's how do you, you know, I will do X for you then you haven't probed deep enough to understand what the true motivations are for that person for taking that action. It's actually true in every category, right? And in the copywriting on every sales page, you want to go deeper. It's again, that test of empathy. So the ideal response to any lead, and we generate a lot of leads, is consultative investigation, interview research to best understand uh, what the true goal is of the project. And then Use that as your north star. Everything should align exactly with that. So, so it's not a one size fits all at all then for you. It is literally go in and find out about the people that are your prospects individually, and then tailor everything to their needs. Yeah, I mean, if it if it was one size fits all, we would all have the same website, and we don't. <laughs> that is yeah. true. Um, so this podcast, Tech with Demand Weekly, goes out to our core audience of CMOs who have perhaps got content strategies of their own already. Um, what's the most common question you get? when you're talking to a CMO? Well, there are people who, when you meet, there's different personality types and there's some CMOs who really just want to know your story. Like, what do you, why do you do this? Uh, what's your background? Uh, and they're mostly in those examples trying to elicit a response that would help them understand how credible you are. So introductions that start with a bit about your background are really helpful in talking to almost anyone to just get that three or four sentence version down pat on how you just describe uh, what you do and why you do it and when you started doing it and and uh, how your your passion and your professional line in a very concise version. But there's also a lot of CMOs that are just um, the industry bias is strong. Uh, so a lot of people say, you know, have you done something in this industry before? Um, surprisingly, the skills about the skills related to building websites in general are actually more important in my experience than specific experience within an industry. There are people who build, who just work with dentists all day and they build lots of dentist websites, but they maybe don't know anything about search optimization or analytics or conversion and psychology and calls to action. They just work, happen to work with dentists. So the qualification for a web design company should be looking at examples especially in analytics. So you're going to judge everything you see instantly as a critic, as we all do, just looking at the visuals of every website. But the idea, what I try to get people to ask me about is, can you show me examples of similar projects and the results that they've achieved? Because now they know that I'm not just playing the sport for fun. I'm watching the scoreboard and literally trying to win for each client. Is there anything in particular, a way that you get people to do that? Is there anything that you've mastered yourself, Andy, that, that sort of leads the client down that path to ask you that question, to show you the, show them your past work? Well, you don't want to embarrass them or make them feel foolish. You're, part of your job as a service provider is to build their confidence and excitement and interest in these important things. So there are some questions that risk uh, turning them off. So if you start by saying... Um, you know, what is the current, what is the conversion rate of the current website? 
per traffic source? What is your conversion rate for search and social? And you know, you're are you are you tracking campaigns using campaign tracking code? And uh, if people don't know what these things are or don't know the answers off the top of their head, uh, they're going to uh, feel foolish and maybe less likely to talk to you again. So you, you want to t- kind of gently guide them toward, um, you know, is this website getting results? Uh, have you seen any evidence of uh, strengths or weaknesses in its ability to attract visitors? Um, is there, uh, how often do you check analytics or is your team very active in measurement? Um, and gradually you'll come to understand their, where they are on the maturity curve for, for as a measurement marketer. And then uh, if they're more advanced, then you jump into the deeper dive and you, you know, you talk about what tools they're using, their technology stack and you know, what, what, what they're tracking and how, and they'll probably immediately tell you if they have tracking issues. Yeah. Our analytics doesn't connect to, you know, these, th- these, this content on the subdomain or, you know, our marketing automation system right now isn't, isn't working well with, you know, they'll, they'll complain about, uh, tracking problems, but for a lot of people, you know, you may just get very emotional, uh, reasons for wanting to design. My site is ugly. My competitor's sites are beautiful. I want to be beautiful. And that is 100% valid. You've mentioned analytics there a fair amount, Andy. Um, how closely do you think you should be looking at them, and, and how should that reflect your decisions on your infrastructure and your content output? I love this question, Charles. It's fun. The the uh, I think the best answer uh, comes back to the point: the difference between analytics reporting and analytics analysis. Okay. So people that are just reporting data, how often should you report data? Uh, weekly, maybe every other week, maybe monthly, depends on how often your boss or executive wants to see the data. But analytics analysis, the question is sort of, um, you should look, you know, how often should you do analysis? You should do analysis as often as you have a question, as often as you're looking for supportive data, you want to support a decision, as often as you have a, a hypothesis about a possible change. So as an example, I'm looking at a web page. Um, I have an idea that the, um, there's content on the bottom of the page that should be higher up at the top. That's my hypothesis. Now I want to support or reject that hypothesis using analytics. So in this case, I was using Hotjar because it does scroll tracking. Analytics does not by default do scroll tracking. So I open up Hotjar, whatever, that's one of the tools. And I see that only 15% of people are making it down to this part of the page where this compelling message is that supported my idea of moving it to the top. If I can move it above this, this, you know, scroll depth, then 75% of people will see that compelling. I think it was like a video testimonial. So I used analytics because I had a question. That's a really simple example, but, uh, you know, should I be more active in a social network? Well, what's the conversion rate from visitor into lead from people in that social network? Okay, it's 0.001%. No, I should not be more active in that social network unless I'm going to really upgrade my, my activity there the way Madeline would. But so analysis is something you should use analytics every time you have a question or idea. I think that's the best answer. 
I think one of the things that I've never really done, I, I've had a, a website myself, which is just a small blog for years, I think maybe two or three years. And I've never bothered looking at the analytics of it whatsoever until about about six weeks ago when I started this podcast, in honesty. Um, uh, and that's kind of helped me shape, well, when am I actually going to um, release a, a blog post on there? And obviously then, of course, with the podcast itself, we look at analytics every week to see, you know, how many listeners we're actually getting, how many people are actually clicking through Apple Podcasts or iTunes to actually then listen to our show. We're, we're tracking that every week, and then I report it back um, to my colleagues just to sort of let them know this is where we're up to in the week. Um I, I, you know, one of the things that I, I haven't really necessarily had to do at the moment is ask myself a question, I suppose. Like you were saying, you you actually analyse it when you have a question. At this moment in time, we're so new into it, only this will be episode seven. Um, I haven't really got a question to ask yet. I suppose once we get to maybe 10, we'll then say to ourselves, right, is Wednesday morning in the UK uh, the right time to be releasing it? And that's when we would then dive into the analytics and actually see when are people listening, not just how many listens we're getting per show. Uh, podcasters are always frustrated by analytics, though, because there's so little data. You know, you don't get, you know, you, you kind of get like downloads, but it's one of the lowest feedback channels or formats for content, for sure. I mean, you know, email and social and, you know, search and website activity. I mean, all these things, we get lots of data, like bounce rates and time on page and I mean, in podcasts, hypothetically, I mean, all you get is downloads. You don't know for sure that each person actually listened or, I mean, it's not, you might get, you might have a hugely successful podcast and not get really any visitors because podcasts are sort of platform agnostic. But it, so <laughs> I'm a podcaster too, and it's frustrating for me, but uh, uh, it's, it's a little more of an act of faith, but it's such a fun format and it's so compelling and, and interesting and um, it, it, it's personal. So, uh, a lot of us just keep doing it, um, because, uh, there's just so many f benefits to it. Uh, but we don't get tons of data and it's very difficult format and channel to do analysis with. Do you get frustrated with that, Andy, then that you, you, you know, you must be quite, um, a lot about analytics yourself in the, in your job role. So then not being able to get the analytics that maybe you want, is that a frustration for you? Uh, I don't worry about it. We all just sort of have to accept, you know, it's like a farmer complaining about weather. <laughs> you, you can get frustrated and you can complain, but it doesn't change anything. So I just try to focus on the things that I can make an impact on. You know, I, I use the data that I have mm -hmm. and try to make the most of it. Uh, if I can't get something, I'll try like the example, you know, what percentage of visitors scroll how far down on a page mm -hmm. and give me that I can use another tool. But if there's no tool, if it's something like podcasting and all we get is downloads and you can't tell, you know, it's not like a video player that shows you after how many seconds, how many people stopped listening. That's really useful. Mm. It'd be nice to have that. We don't get that here. So we just move on. We, we just like to believe that everyone listens right to the last second. And that's what we, <laughs> we carry on thinking. <laughs> that's all we got. <laughs> so looking to the future then, Andy, you need to always be looking to stay ahead of the game and upping your revenue, of course. So how should you be looking to change and develop with demand? Well, I had a great conversation with Dan Shure, who's a SEO and has a great podcast, um, Experts on the Wire. It's an SEO podcast. This is the Digital Marketing Experts Podcast episode... Oh. 
Why am I trying to sound like a radio announcer? He said something to me the other day that was, um, said almost anyone can make more money simply by wrapping their services in more strategy. So uh, this aligns with a, a slide or a diagram I saw from Robert Rose at Content Marketing World, um, where, he's, where he showed how strategy at one end and measurement at the other end are the two things that we offer as marketers that have the highest uh, value and people pay the most for it. So uh, I think it's really important to uh, stay positioned as a, a source of insight and uh, a guide and a good maker of plans because some of the execution tasks, uh, they just sort of keep getting commoditized and pushed down. I mean, if you're you know, trying to make a living as a blogger, you know, you're getting, you're competing on price with so many people, but if you're known as a good strategist and someone that people should talk to, to get better ideas and learn what to do, what not to do, then I think you're, you're better positioned as an agency to command uh, higher rates and to produce far greater ROI for your clients. So looping back then to where we started and content marketing. So th this year, the Content Marketing Institute, they've reported that successful B2B marketers spend 40% uh, of their budget on content marketing, which is up 1% uh, from 2017. What do you think that percentage is going to look like in three years time, Andy? Well, it will. I'm not sure. <laughs> it's a really good question. So the reality of digital is that there's a handful of companies that basically control the internet. And there's in advertising and paid, there's kind of a duopoly between Facebook and Google. So those companies are have a, a strong incentive to keep reducing click-through rates and organic reach. So if you're hoping to get free traffic forever from, from Facebook and Google, uh, that's not going to work out well for you. So people who are not as good at content marketing will likely shift budgets toward paid as Google shows more stuff above organic listings and makes ads more prominent. And as Facebook throttles back organic reach and suggests that we all boost our posts. So I think that people that pay for traffic, that number will increase. But those that get results from content marketing and have good strategy and understand measurement and know what they're doing will continue to spend more money on it. So I think that the gap between what brands need and what marketers can provide or what hiring managers need and what their candidates have and their skill sets will continue to grow. And that group of people that really know how to generate demand and really understand search and, and human psychology, conversion, you know, those dual threat marketers, they're going to get much more expensive and difficult to hire. Brands will have to spend more to attract that kind of talent. But uh, the, the people who are not getting, you know, the medium and low result set will probably pull back from content and just move toward paid. My thanks to Andy Crestadina. That was a lot of fun. You should definitely go and check out orbitmedia.com where you can find Andy's company. And you can see a lot of the material that Andy spoke about in the episode at our website, tech-demand.com forward slash podcast. That brings a close to the month of October here at Tech Demand Weekly. Next month, we're going to be focusing on lead generation and talking waterfalls, buying cycles, and decoding your MQLs from your SQLs. If you'd like to be part of this or have a question, then do get in touch via our email address, podcast at tech-demand.com. Don't forget to leave us a review on Apple Podcasts and make sure you subscribe to the show on your favourite podcast catcher. That's it for this week. I'm Charles Commons and I'll see you next time on Tech Demand Weekly. Music.